Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm so excited about our guest today because um, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, this is an iconic sports agent, a author, speaker, philanthropist, chairman, and founder of the Steinberg Sports Entertainment. Uh, this is Mr. Lee Steinberg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if you remember this. But we've met before, uh, and I'll, I'll give you some background and see if it rings a bell. Um, so this was, and I'm not name dropping, but it happens to be a Jim Belushi's house. Uh, so there was a, a, um, a conference for... I, yeah, yeah, I, for do, I do remember it was, I was uh, really surprised there were all these venture capitalists walking around. It was sort of a festival of uh, cannabis. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And there were all these venture capital people walking around that all wanted to get involved in it. And uh, so I do remember. Yeah, it was amazing. And, I, and, I, and the panel was really interesting because I don't know how I fit this panel. So it was you. It was uh, Riley Cote that played for the Flyers. Al Harrington, uh, you know, basketball player. Then it was Frank Shamrock. And it was, I think, Nate Jackson. If I'm not mistaken, maybe I missed somebody. Oh, you're, and, you're right, because we had uh, represented Nate, and uh, and so it was like a reunion. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and I'm good friends with Evan Britton, uh, who was doing a show with Nate at that time. But it was funny because the guy, Jim, who was introducing all of us, I mean, everybody was an athlete, and you're obviously uh, you know involved in that. And then he gets to me, and he goes, uh, Len May... Um, and he forgot anything about me. So he just called me the sciencey guy. And the funny thing is somebody in the audience, uh, sent me t-shirts, box them, hashtag sciencey guy. So I was using it as my, my hashtag. <laughs> That's sort of funny. I, I love it when I give a speech and I'm introduced. Uh, and now here's Lee Steinberg. Oh, you know, all know him. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. <laughs> there you go. I forgot. I think I think uh, we were medicating prior to the talk, so he, oh. it may have affected him a little bit. Um, well, once again, thank you. And I want I want to start with. I mean, there's obviously 
a tremendous amount of information on your background, everything else. But just for my audience, in case they don't know, um, maybe you can tell everybody where you grew up and sort of a little bit about your your childhood. I have some questions about that too. So I grew up in West Los Angeles um, to a father who was a school teacher and then principal of uh, of uh, a, a couple big high schools, Fairfax High School. And a mother who was an audiovisual librarian. And my parents stressed two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was try to make a meaningful difference in the world and heal pain and help people who can't help themselves. So I was sort of hardwired uh, for all of that. And um, I grew, grew up in, in Los Angeles, was a Huge Dodger, Angel, Ram, UCLA fan, and um, with a father who had played basketball at SC, so we were um, all crazy sports fans. So uh, did you have any siblings? I had two brothers, um, two younger brothers. One has been an ambassador in the uh, State Department. He was ambassador to Angola and ambassador to the Landmines Commission and a special envoy to Haiti and um, and the other who's a sort of a spiritual leader in Northern California. Uh, so growing up in this household, you know, family means so much, such an interesting dynamic. And when you were growing up, uh, did you envision yourself like, I want to be an athlete, or I, I'm not sure if being an agent was something that you envisioned? Usually it's like an astronaut or a fireman or something like that. What, what were your aspirations going up? Oh, I was going to be, uh, there There were all sorts of lawyer shows back in the 50s. And, uh, so I saw Perry Mason and Judd for the defense and the defenders, and I thought I'll be an advocate for the people as a lawyer. And maybe one day I'll go into politics. And uh, the concept of sports agency was many years away from happening. So, uh, and then when you uh, finished high school, you uh, you went to uh, college. Where where'd you go for undergrad? I, I went a year to UCLA, and then it was the late 60s, and Berkeley was the vortex of... Uh, of uh, Long hair and uh, and tie dye and, and rock music and anti Vietnam and so I was ended up at, at Berkeley and I ended up student body president and the governor of California was Ronald Reagan so every time we demonstrated he cracked down and I learned everything I needed to learn about the art of negotiating from interacting with then governor later president Reagan. That's so cool. Uh yeah, cuz you were uh, you know I read somewhere they they were calling you a hippie at the time and you were and it's just because you know you went to Berkeley and you you like music and and just like what college kids do but I think it's the whole clean cut Ronald Reagan as and then obviously he became president then there was such a a parallel uh, juxtaposition because you're now moving into business and all that stuff, but you have this reputation and then you have that clean cut attitude that's coming on. So there's probably some friction on trying to get, uh, you know, going as uh, uh, the Vietnam war was going on and virtually everybody below the age of 30 was very opposed to it. And so we would demonstrate and they would crack down and, um, but as a hippie, I mean, we're going to school, having to get good grades so you can get into law school. That was, uh, fairly out there. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's a, just a, uh, a stigma that's been associated with. Um, so when you got, I'm just curious because as you just said, you know, being a sports agent was so far away and you were going to be. Uh, an attorney. I remember my my good friend when he graduated from uh, from uh, law school. Uh, I said, "Oh, you're going to represent, you know, people, and what what are you going to do?" He goes, "Oh, no. When you get a uh, law degree 
And uh, it's like a license to print money. You can do a real estate brokerage. You can be a sports agent, all that stuff. So since this didn't really exist, how did you get into like, I'm going to represent athletes? So um, I worked my way through law school as a dorm counselor or an RA in an undergraduate dorm. And one year they moved the football team into the dorm and the quarterback of the team was a big star named Steve Bartkowski. So we got to know each other. We, we, it was an interesting dorm. I counseled, uh, we had a little, um, bearded fella named Steve who kept getting everybody's phones ringing. And that was Steve Wozniak. And he went down <laughs> to Santa Clara and put Apple together with, uh, Steve Jobs. We had another fellow who was the president who left school and then developed power bars. Um, so an interesting time. But in 1975, I had been out of law school for a year and traveling the world. And uh, I came back and, and the draft then was in January. And Bartkowski became the very first player pick, first player in the first round. And um, asked, asked me to, we started talking and he asked me to represent him. So mm -hmm. there I was brimming with legal experience, never having practiced law before. And I had the first pick and there was a world football league competing against the NFL. So we had leverage and we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And um, that's how it started. And then I remember... Um, there really wasn't any organized field of sports agency. There was no collective bargaining agreement. So teams would just hang up the phone if you called up and said you were an agent. Um, it luckily didn't happen with Bartkowski. But we get back to Atlanta to do the first signing and we arrive at the airport the night before and there are Klieg lights flashing in the sky. And a huge crowd was pressed up against the police uh, line. And the first thing we heard was, we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bill. And then Steve Bartkowski and his attorney, Lee Steinberg, have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. Well, I had not seen anything like that. And so I thought about my dad's core value make a difference in the world. And I thought, you know what? These are the movie stars. These are the celebrities, these athletes. And if I had them retrace their roots and go back to the high school community that helped shape them and set up a scholarship fund or work with the Boys and Girls Club, um, they could put down roots. And, and then at the collegiate institution, if they would go back and set some form of program up, they could bond with the alums who would be generous mentors. And then at the pro city, putting a charitable foundation together that would have the leading business figures, political figures, and community leaders sitting on a board that would um, implement a program. And so... Um, I didn't know that I'd continue doing it as a business, but I saw where using athletes as cultural symbols to trigger imitative behavior could maybe be more profound than being a district attorney or running for office. Yeah, and ma making a, a huge impact in the communities themselves. Yeah, it makes total sense. Uh, I, I know you've been asked this probably a gazillion times before, but I just want to ask this because uh, I asked my my uh, daughter and I call her friends. I'm like, hey, have you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? And they didn't remember. But when I said, it's the one that showed me the money. Yeah, right, that movie. Okay. So I, I'm trying to, like, you're the inspiration uh, behind that character. How did that come about? So uh, in 1993, Cameron Crowe, a very talented writer-director, called me up and asked if he could follow me around for a film that would feature a sports agent. Mm -hmm. So I had seen a movie that he went underground in an L.A. high school to write a book about called 
fast times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. So I said, okay. And he came to the 1993 league meetings in uh, Palm Desert, where I was walking free agents around and introducing them to teams. And, and sometimes he would be in the conversation. Sometimes I would tell him stories. Sometimes he'd be a fly on the wall. But he spent a week out there with me. And then we went to the draft in 93, where I had the client Drew Bledsoe drafted first. And he would ask me questions like, what's your greatest fear? And I said, well, I think I'm representing the first player in the draft. What if I woke up tomorrow and he had switched? Um, and then he went to a series of games with me. He went to a couple of Super Bowls, our Super Bowl party. Um, he went to pro scouting day at SC and I told him stories, lots of stories. And he went off and wrote the script. I was technical advisor. So my job was to vet the script to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief that holds you in a motion picture wasn't broken. And then he had me work with some of the actors. So I took Cuba Gooding Jr., who played Rod Tidwell down to phoenix and he pretended he was a wide receiver client of mine all week for the super bowl and i actually had to show the quarterback in the film who's played by jerry o'connell how to throw a spiral because he had gone to nyu and they didn't <laughs> have football there so um it's been over 25 years now but i rarely and go out to dinner or walk through an airport where someone doesn't run up to me <laughs> and either ask me to say these four words or um, say to me, show me the. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a great, great story. Uh, and, and it's, it's just a, such a legacy. I, I'm curious about how this works technically. So you I think you were involved with uh, more number one uh, picks in the, in the NFL than any other agent. I was wondering, do you target a certain player who you think and you believe is going to be number one? Or because of the reputation you have, did they reach out to you that they believe they're going to be the number one pick and they want the best agent to represent them? How does that work? It, it sort of comes both ways. We profile clients. I'm looking for people who will do what Warwick Dunn did, which is put 200 single mothers and their families into the first home they'll ever buy by making the down payment and moving them in. Or Patrick Mahomes, 15, and the Mahomes that helps that risk kids. Or... Someone who messages like Lennox Lewis, I helped the heavyweight boxer. And we put together a public service campaign that said, real men don't hit women. So I'm looking for an athlete that's brighter, focused on second career, hopefully a good family. Um, and those are the ones that we talked to, but they'll undergo an interview procedure where Maybe they're talking to five agents, and so everyone's making pitches. And you may meet the parents who are screeners well before you ever meet the player. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting because I was going to ask you uh, how you transitioned to boxing with Oscar De La Hoya and, and Lennox Lewis, and then and then the people who. I was wondering if there was a personality because Lennox is, he's such a well-spoken, likable guy. And Oscar obviously had aspirations to have a, a second career in show business and representation. And that's why I was going to ask if, if you look for that intangible, like sort of a star quality, uh, in, uh, not just that they're going to be a great athlete and be in a score as many touchdowns or get as many knockouts, but there's some, something that's intangible. I care about um, the concept of role modeling, and I also care about second career. So if you get the right athletes, like I had 49ers like Steve Young and Brent Jones, yeah, and they trained in Santa Clara. So I was able to say to them, does it make sense for us to network with any industries proximate to Santa Clara? Well, high tech yeah. and a huge venture capital community. So both of those players 
networked and put together foundations. And at the end of it, Brent Jones like had a $4 billion hedge fund and Steve Young is still the head of a hedge fund. So yeah. you're looking for an athlete that might be good in television, that might be a business owner. Three of my former clients own part of NFL teams. So you're looking for an enlightened athlete who's going to be a self-starter, who's going to have a, a elite work ethic, and and is going to go out there and make a difference in the world. So, yes. And as a transition, I started in baseball in the early 70s. I had Mark Lansford, who American League batting champ, and did that for a series of, of years and had a partner, Jeff Morad, and we had 60 baseball players. So that started sort of when football did. Basketball came again from uh, uh, a lawyer who, who was helping a basketball player, Greg Anthony in UNLV. Um, uh, Oscar De La Hoya came because he was very close to the biggest car dealer in East LA. And that person reached out to me and asked if I want to help. My concept in boxing was that Lennox and Oscar ought to be their own promoters and that they could be role models as businessmen if they became the promoter and um, help the younger boxers. Did you ever uh, sort of invest your, your resources in somebody that was, how do I say this, not seen as like the top, top prospect, but because of sort of the investment, your time, uh, they were surprised. Maybe they, they reached certain uh, heights that everybody didn't expect them to reach. Did you have anybody like that? Well, I always thought Warren Moon would be great, but because of um, uh, inherent stereotypes and racism, there weren't a lot of black quarterbacks. So he had to go play in Edmonton in CFL for six years and then came back um as a pure free agent, signed the NFL's biggest contract. But yeah. so, yes, you would find people that you would think will be stars, but they're not necessarily um, at that level. But you, it's all about projecting them into the future. Yeah. And um, like a Mahomes. Yeah. Well, I'm an Eagles fan, so I'm uh, partial to my Eagles uh, getting beat by Mahomes. But yeah, obviously he's an incredible player. Um, uh, along those lines, you also represented Olympic athletes. So I'm just curious because these are athletes who aren't, you know, they're not making money, or at that point they weren't making money because they're amateur athletes. And then you have gymnastics, sports like gymnastics that. I don't know what the professional t trajectory is of that person, but you have personality athletes that you can actually, you know, at that time put in a Wheaties box, et cetera. So when you're representing an Olympic athlete, are you looking for like what their career is going to be post in sports? Or are you looking at them as a, um, a personality that you can brand uh, there them uh, as, as that individual person after they're done with their Olympic well, they play in the Olympics, which is the biggest sports audience outside the Super Bowl. And the Olympic broadcast itself um, brands them, tells stories about them. So that's a help. The first one I did was Brian Baitano, who had won the gold medal in ice skating. Yeah. And there really was no career path laid out for an ex-skater. So we created a skate show with uh, he and Katarina Vitt, which they owned. And skate shows are very popular. They're music, and they go in arenas, and they're a lot of fun. But anyway, we gave them, empowered them and over that. And then I helped Brian, not creatively, but he created a special for ABC TV, which was Carmen on Ice. And Carmen on Ice went on to win an Emmy. In the case of Carrie Strug, she had just stuck a dramatic vault, broken her leg, but stuck the vault anyway, which made, made the women 
gold medalist um, in gymnastics. So I had to create things for her. Um, so I got her to hand out an award with Bob Hope. It's a family film awards. We talked to the people at um, Live about doing a skit where um, her evil twin, Chris Catan, would, <laughs> would make fun of her voice, you know, all in good fun. Barbara Walters, most interesting people. Mm-hmm. And then I did a couple of deals for her. One was her own gymnastics show, which toured, and the other was to put her on the sidelines of the ice capades where she did some gymnastic uh, 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 things. And then there were some endorsements, but really you were looking for ways to keep that profile high because once the Olympic ends, uh, there's not as big a market for those athletes. Right. It's super creative, uh, all the things you just talked about. So it's part being sort of, you know, a business person, but part being, I guess, an artist in a way, because you have to start creating these different uh, things. I wanted to ask you uh, philanthropy, because I know you're you're big into in philanthropy. And I, I talked to several uh, people who uh, who help charitable causes. And then sometimes, you know, they're just you know giving money to these charities and not, not exactly sure if the money's trickling down to the people that really need it. So, uh, be, you know, you have your own uh, philanthropic uh, kind of objective. But when you're supporting a lot of these uh, charities, do you do due diligence on them or is it something that you're connecting to personally? Like, how do you know which sort of charities? Because I'm sure everybody knocks on your door. I'm like, they, they'd love to have your support. How do you make that determination? There are a couple of people, Kevin Kaplan of Coaching Charities and Mark Pollock, who have Uber um, organizations that park player charities underneath them. So they do the housekeeping. They do the Better Business Bureau requirements of giving the right amount of money. They do due diligence into it. On my own charities, I just funded them. I, I thought there was a real problem with the rise of skinheads and hate groups. So I funded a program called Cyberg Leadership that the 30 biggest cities in the country and young people got a year of leadership training and how to spot skinheads and hate groups, how to aid local police departments in crisis, how to go into school systems and uh, develop programs for ethnic tolerance. Um, and I did a, a whole series of summer camps for kids um, that uh, taught them good human relations skills so people would appreciate the uniqueness of their ethnic background, not be afraid of other kids. So I did a whole bunch of education programs. And and then I've taken the issue of concussion and uh, tried to, for the last 30 years, pioneer better awareness, prevention, and cure. And we hold... Um, First of all, at my Super Bowl party every year, we pick a charity. Last year it was the homeless in Phoenix, but um, and we have a brain health summit where we go through whatever breakthroughs there are in terms of TBI and um, uh, try to promote change and better brain health. Yeah, I was actually going to, it's a great segue because I, I was going to ask you about uh, you know your your contribution to health and and brain health specifically uh, in your research and in, the, in the, your organization are you looking into plant medicine cannabis being one of them or other things that can actually help uh, athletes and then the follow up question to that is there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, friction with that political uh, friction with getting, you know, plant medicine uh, to the athletes, especially, uh, you know, through collective bargaining and, and different leagues. So is there anything that we can do to support that? Well, look, here's the thing. It's, it's really hard to tell a league that they ought to permit cannabis use when it's against the law in certain states. 
I mean, here in California, we have a very different approach, and Oregon has the same thing, and there's some states that do it, but CBDs are okay, and a number of athletes use them. Um, in terms of um, – now, I went to Berkeley in the 60s, so suffice it to say, I won't be Bill Clinton and say I never inhaled, but the – Reality is, I found a couple of brain treatments. One um, for it's called RTMS, which is magnets against the brain, and through the theory of neuroplasticity, can rewire a damaged brain. And there's another one, Nestry, um, with Tommy Shavers, that uses biofeedback. And and the premise has always been that the brain, once concussed, will only get worse. But in these cases, I've found new breakthroughs that will help make it better. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a tremendous amount of uh, research on neuroplasticity that's going on uh, now. And there is neuroprotective qualities in CBD, as you mentioned. And uh, maybe the leagues uh, can uh, not test and let the athletes make a decision. I, I think the NBA is doing that now, right? And I would be in favor of that because um, the alternative is opiates. And a sport like football, there's even if a player's not called injured, they, they're injured in your and my definition of injury because they're all beat up. And if they're looking for relief, I'd much rather have them use cannabis than uh, do what a number of our players have done, which is get hooked in the hospital on opiates and become addicts, you know, and have to kick. And it's not pretty. Yeah, I remember, I think Ricky Williams told me one time, he said he used to get off the bus and the trainer would give him like a handful of pills and he'd say he pretend he would take the pills, put them in his pocket, and then go smoke a joint instead. So uh, t- totally makes sense, even though. No, Ricky, <laughs> Ricky for better or for worse is one of mine. <laughs> and that we all, well, I don't know. Is it for better or for worse? Because well, he was a totally intriguing character, and even though he had ups and downs through his career, there were two Ricky Williams. One was the dedicated hardcore, perfect practice player, perfect player on the field, great teammate. And the other was a searcher for higher truth that uh, was just a young, intriguing person looking for meaning in life. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a deep guy when you get down and talk to him. I, I, I definitely understand that. Um, so in your, I mean, your your Sort sort of next phase in your career. Uh, I mean, you're writing some amazing books, and uh, you're you're speaking. And uh, one thing that I also see that you're given these uh, these tidbits of uh, information on uh, on LinkedIn and some other uh, places. I mean, it's fantastic that you're you're able to give some of those nuggets back. Uh, but did you have any mentors when uh, that? you know, when you were kind of going through your career? And then, uh, if so, what were some of the, um, what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome yourself so you can kind of uh, share that with, with others as well? Well, I um, had a struggle with alcohol. And in 2010, um, went into sober living and had to break denial about the fact that I had a problem and to... Um, join a unique fellowship uh, and work a 12-step program. Um, So I'm in the middle of my 14th year of continuous sobriety, but um, that was a challenge. And I hadn't grown up in a family where uh, there was alcohol. And and for most of my life, I was one beer Steinberg. But I'm here to prove that you don't have to be genetically... um, uh, forecast for it. You can just drink too much. And so, um, I had to be able to be resilient and in the midst of detritus and destruction, find, find the light at the end of the tunnel and just have faith in the process that eventually things would get better. And, uh, 
So I waited a couple of years till I was sure that I at least had a solid program and, and then got back into the business and that led to the current uh, firm. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. You know, I, I deal with the, in my business, I deal with, uh, you mentioned genetics. I have a genetics company. That's one of the things that we do is looking for genetic predispositions to opioid dependence, alcohol. And uh, you're absolutely right. Just because you don't have a genetic predisposition doesn't mean you can't, uh, you know, create a, uh, a situation for yourself. And, and so what for the future, I'll probably continue representing a few key athletes, um, but I'm working on another book. We do agent academies that you reference teaching younger people um, how to negotiate, how to recruit, basic core skills, listening skills, how to push yourself in another person's heart and mind and discover their deepest anxieties and fears and greatest hopes and dreams. So that if you can put yourself in another person's heart and mind and see the world the way they see it, you can navigate your way through life gracefully, but it's all about listening uh, as opposed to just being about suasion. Um, so we'll do more of that. I have a a uh, health and athletic performance uh, project I'm working on, which is hyperbaric oxygen, stem cells, red, white, and blue light, nanovi and a couple of brain treatment things, which I mentioned. Um, and I've taken them to pro teams so that at the very end of a game, when the whole game is on the line, can you produce more productivity, energy, endurance in key moments to give a team a competitive balance? And then can you treat players who suffer injuries in a way that makes their rehab much quicker. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing. Uh, we, we should definitely talk offline about the research that we're doing in that space for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about, I, I think I, you, I'm trying to remember what it was called, uh, Wisdom Wednesday, I think you were, you were <laughs> but you were talking about outdoors. I mean, it's so connected with me because I took this uh, class on flow state from Stephen Kotler, and I discovered that my optimal flow state, that's sort of when all your neurochemicals are, are firing at the optimal cylinders. I'm sure you've, you've known this for years working with athletes. I found that for me, hiking, like when I'm in nature, I shut off my brain about thinking about business or anything else. And I just absorb that nature. So I wanted to kind of, uh, maybe find out what some of the things that you do a part of your flow or uh, for fun, what are the things that you do like sort of disconnect? And well, I, I have a love affair with the water and have always lived by the beach. I could have a ramshackle hovel as a house, as long as it looks at the water. And uh, so it's remember that our species grew up, in the cave, but in forests and in jungles. And we evolved as a species interacting with trees and flowers and, and nature. And there's something in the resin of that bark. There's something in the seeds of those things that is symbiotic with us. And so you need to, uh, in the midst of a big city, you need to find a place to do that. Um, I love reading. I love traveling. Um, I uh, um, uh, love sitting, being in the sun. Um, and uh, uh, what are some of the, your favorite places that you've visited? Oh, sitting on the beach here in Newport Beach. There you uh, go. <laughs> watching, watching the sunset. Yeah. Um, my point in Wednesday Wisdom was just that we have a tendency to sleepwalk through life focusing on what's in front of us but being oblivious to the fact that this planet has amazing natural beauty and as you mentioned in your own case it can have a real palliative positive effect on uh, uh, people and um, um, I mean we forget that there's stars up there 
right? Because you can't see them in a big city. Um, we, we forget that there's forests and lakes and oceans and nature, but we have to be in touch with it. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I'm like I said, I'm from Philly. I actually was born in Lithuania, so I immigrated when I was about six years old. My parents and growing up in Philly, you know, I didn't have the access and moving to LA. Like I appreciate, uh, you know, the having to be able to ski an hour away, go on the beach because I didn't have that. And people who are from here, I think they start taking that for granted a little bit. So I'm always trying I'll, to remind them. I'll show you what I look at. Oh, yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> that's a great view. Um, I, I have a, a few questions I, I ask uh, my guests. Uh, let me know if you're comfortable answering them. I, I, the first question I ask is about their experience with cannabis. And since you brought that up, um, if you remember, uh, please describe your first experience with cannabis. I was already up at Berkeley and... Uh, I was in uh, my second year of college, and remember, this is cannabis was something that jazz musicians smoked. It was called reefers. <laughs> um, it wasn't until I got out of high school that that it sort of hit. Um, and uh, I think if I had stuck with that, I would uh, never become an alcoholic. But um, in point of fact, when I started to have kids being grown and everything, I stopped stopped using it, plus being with the athletes. Um, but I actually had great experiences with it and uh, I loved music and interpersonal activities and uh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so I had positive experiences, of course, we used to be three or four people sitting around um, um, taking 20 million hits on a, 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 a joint um, and getting sort of high. And today I understand that the THC content of everything is exponentially more. Yeah, it's completely unnecessary. And I think that's, it, people don't understand that THC is a very narrow therapeutic window. And we used to get cannabis, you know, back in the day with 5%, maybe 8% THC. It's exactly what you describe it to, to be. But now they have concentrates, so like 80, 90% THC. And it's really completely unnecessary. So, Well, I'll tell you, I, I don't know how I'd react to that. It's been many, many years um, since, uh, 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 since I did it, but but again, to me, um, if you had two substances and one of them makes you aggressive, causes you to drive badly, breaks up families, creates fights, is horrible on the body, and the other one causes you to uh, eat a lot of candy and watch <laughs> cartoons, which one would you ban? Exactly. That's a great point. Uh, speaking of music, uh, do you remember the first concert that you ever attended? Oh yeah, I, it was. Remember, it's it's the '60s, so it's it's um, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Cream with Eric Clapton. It's Janis Joplin. They're at Winterland and uh, uh, at uh, the Fillmore in San Francisco. We're at Berkeley. And they had these three bills with like Jefferson Airplane and wow. Country Joe and the Fish and um, and all these amazing groups, The Doors. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember the first uh, five rows of the Fillmore was Acid. The next five rows was Mescaline and all the rest <laughs> of the place was pretty stoned out. <laughs> Uh, do you still go to concerts? Do you go to live shows? Not as much anymore. It's just that um, the noise level uh, when you uh, get a little bit older is like unbelievably loud. And uh, the my my son asked for a big favor would, uh, some years back. Would I take him to see Eminem? Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> 
so I did. I never heard more um, uh, repetitions of the word having to do with copulate than <laughs> that, that night. But yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah, it's not even age. I, I went to get my hearing checked, and I'm starting to uh, uh, lose a little bit of hearing. And I think I used to be into music. I used to work uh, at Tower Records. I used to be a music buyer for Tower Records. And they told me I need to start wearing musician-grade earplugs because that's that noise is the, the damaging my ears. So I lost part of my hearing. Jimi Hendrix was playing the Star Spangled Banner, and I thought it'd be a good idea to put my head up against the speaker. <laughs> and um, you you pay for those consequences later in life, you know, where, thank God, there's great hearing aids. But you have an amazing memory of Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner Ooh, now. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, when I was student body president of Berkeley, I showed Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison around Berkeley because they... Wow because they wanted to be part of it so it was just sort of a fun experience I, I think you should write a book about that your interactions with some of these people that you uh that came across uh, your life not even on the athlete side that you represented but just oh, these relationships fun. with and musicians you, super cool when we did steve bartkowski there was a, a politician running for president in atlanta and it was jimmy carter and um so the amount of people that you meet in business, politics, entertainment, sports, it's uh, sort of unusual. It's, it's amazing. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot, see if you can answer this question. You have to listen to five albums in one year, only five. And you don't have to remember the name of the album. It can be just like, you know, whatever, the Beatles or something like that. What would be those five uh, albums uh, that you would listen to? So the first one would be um, some musicals from Broadway, um, like uh, Peter Pan or Camelot or Bye Bye Birdie. or that. There would be a little section. That would be like one-fifth of it. And uh, then um, um, the Rolling Stones would certainly be one. Um, the Stones, um, Jimi Hendrix, um, The Doors. So when I was going to UCLA, I went up to Cal for All Cal Weekend. And somebody put headphones with Light My Fire on. And that was it for me. I knew I had to be in Berkeley. Um, so it would uh, probably be the doors. Now, recently, my taste, my daughter informs me of the taste of a teenage girl <laughs> because, because I like Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and, uh, and uh, people like that. But um, it would be a combo, an eclectic display from, from uh, Broadway musicals to, to, um, uh, you know, I went and heard, uh, oh my God, not Pavarotti, but the uh, the greatest tenor of our time at the Hollywood Bowl. Anyway, it would be a mixture. That's pretty cool. Uh, plus your Domingo? But it would also have Motown on it. Um, you know, it'd be the Supremes and the Four Tops and uh, groups like that. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, my list always changes too. I say five now, but it's a moment in time tomorrow. I can have a couple other ones for sure. All right. So I have a bonus question for you. Last one I'll, I'll ask you, please describe what your room looked like growing up. So my room was the library. Well, first of all, when I started out, we didn't have a lot of money. So, um, I roomed with my two brothers, so we had bunk beds and a trundle, and I was on the top uh, uh, floor. And we had a little black and white TV, which we watched cartoons on. And then I, uh, we added on the house, and I got a big upgrade because I moved into what was the library in our house. And I lifetime passion with books. As a matter of fact, I have a book club on uh, on. Uh, Facebook that's got 2,600 people. It's just Lee Steinberg Book Club. But um, it was like that, and it, it backed onto a patio. 
um, a big TV set, and uh, um, and that was my room. No, I, I'm assuming no like posters in the wall or anything like that. Um, yeah, well, I grew up loving the Lakers and the Dodgers, and my first big sports heroes were Sandy Koufax and Maury Wills and uh, Don Drysdale. And my father had had played at UCLA, and he uh, UCLA basketball was huge for me. Got it. Uh, Lee, if people want to engage with you, uh, your content, uh, anything else, how do they get in touch with you? Where should they go? Um, so I, I tweet. Well, it used to be called tweet. At, <laughs> at, uh, it's Lee X Tucker. now or something like that. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it, um, uh, Lee. Uh, L-A-I-G-H at SteinbergSpeaks.com um, will get to me. Yeah, I think Steinberg Speaks uh, is the main site. It has all your links on there. Excellent. Lee, I want to thank you so much. This has been a true honor for me. Uh, I'm a fan. I, I Just your energy and what you've been able to contribute and like just this mindset because I, I was always uh there's a lot of people who talk about negotiating and they talk about you know they have this sort of how do i describe Ari gold type of association with what an agent should be you need to be an asshole you need to yell at people and i never found that to be a connection and what you just said and how you laid the foundation i think it's truly inspiring because i think it's about that uh, you know, giving back and coming from contribution all the time. And you just underlined that and highlighted it. So I really appreciate yeah, it. I, I think at the end of life that newspaper clippings fade, fame fades, um, the amount of money for contracts, somebody would have done the contract, that fades. And all you have left is, is were you a good son? Were you a good father? Were you a good friend to people when they needed a friend? And how much did you contribute to people who were having problems in the world? And that's it. That's that's the way in which I judge myself. Love that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one toke at a time.